0: All right, tonight we are looking at um, Revelation chapter 7. So if you want to turn there. All right, so Israel and the people of God in the book of Revelation. So let's look at the text. I'm reading, um, I intend to read here from the NRSV. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun having the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to damage earth and sea saying, Do not damage earth or sea or trees until we have marked the servants of our God with a seal on their foreheads. And I heard a number of those who were sealed, one hundred and forty-four thousand sealed out of every tribe of Israel, uh, from the tribe of Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Nephtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin, twelve thousand from each. And after this, and there was a, gr- I, and after this, I looked. And there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces, faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory. And wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to uh, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these robed in white and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you are the one that knows. And then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to the springs of the water of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. So, uh, I love this passage. Um, if, if I were just to back up a bit and give you kind of the arc of the story. So initially, John has this vision of the risen Christ and it's a commissioning service. He's told to write and he writes those messages to these seven churches in Asia Minor. Then he has this second vision or the second part of the vision and it's a throne room vision And he sees God and the throne and the angels and the elders. And it's this huge worship scene. Everyone's worshiping God on earth, under the earth, in the sea, all in heaven. Everyone's worshiping God because God's creator. And then the story shifts a bit because God has this scroll. Well, the scroll is this image of the word of the Lord. Um, Sometimes in Hebrew prophets we get... Their call narrative, we call them. The story of how they're called to be a prophet. And it's ever so brief. The word of the Lord came to Amos and he said. Hardly a call narrative. You know, it's not really a story. But others are very elaborate. Isaiah, Ezekiel. You get these kind of long stories about how they had this spiritual experience with God. and They had a vision and they saw things and God's calling them to be a prophet. Uh, this is kind of John's call narrative. It's the story of him being called to be a prophet. And it's very, very similar to Ezekiel. So, Ezekiel sees a throne, John sees a throne. Ezekiel sees God on the throne, God, John sees John on the throne. Ezekiel sees a rainbow around the throne, John sees a rainbow around the throne. Only rainbow in all the New Testament. Ezekiel sees four living creatures, only other place in the Bible you see four living creatures? In Revelation, right? So, all of this kind of similarity. The difference is there's a, there's a scroll in the hand of God in Ezekiel, which Ezekiel is then given. And the idea is this is the word of the Lord. This is the message that you're to, to deliver. And so he's given this scroll and he reads it and he then delivers the message, right? He's, he's received the word of the Lord. Now he delivers it. The difference with John is John's scroll is sealed. Uh, sealed shut. So, if you think of a scroll. Don't think of like a single cylinder. Think of like um, uh, like two rolling pins <laughs> together that you got to you know roll open, roll closed, and to keep them from rolling open, they would tie a ribbon around it. And to keep somebody from sneaking a peek, sometimes they would melt some wax and you know sometimes put an impression of a ring or whatever to say this is sealed. Don't open it. It's like a contract. So. They'd write something on the outside, but basically it was probably just the title of what the scroll was. So whether it was a marriage contract or maybe it was a contract to, um, I don't know, sell a piece of property or maybe something other, like the scroll of Isaiah, like a biblical book, right? They'd write on the outside, so they knew what the scroll was. But scrolls are not written completely on front and back. They're not, you know, filled that way. So when it says written on front and back, the back bit was probably just the title, so both Ezekiel's scroll were told written front and back, John's scroll written front and back. <clears throat> so um, John's scroll, though, isn't just sealed a single time, it's sealed seven times. So there's no way this thing's fallen open. This is like, like tight shut. So um, sometimes I imagine, although this is not probably not a very historical analogy, but you know those big old books from like the Middle Ages and they had like latches on them? Imagine one that had like seven latches on it. Of course, books hadn't been invented yet. So it didn't look like that. But the scroll was like sealed. So John weeps because, um, well, he weeps because the, seal is, the scroll is sealed. Um, that doesn't make me all that sad. I read the story and it said that the scroll was sealed. And John's over here weeping his eyes out. But well, why is he weeping? Well, because he's the prophet. And the word of the Lord is sealed shut. He doesn't have access to it. So it's like a prophet with nothing to say. Um, or a preacher with nothing to say. Of course, a preacher with nothing to say just makes up stuff. So that's, but that's not very helpful. <laughs> um, but <laughs> There you go, right. Uh, it's, very, it's not unlike Isaiah. So in Isaiah's call, um, uh, who shall I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And God says, they won't hear you. They won't see you. Your, your work won't make a difference. You know, ugh. so you get that, that sense of, I don't know, despair a bit. So he's weeping and, um, because the, the, seal, the scroll is sealed. But then he is told that the Lion of Judah can open it. So he turns and looks, but what he sees, this is in Revelation chapter 5, is not a lion, but a lamb, a lamb that was slain for the salvation of the world. And so what he hears is a very Jewish symbol, the symbol of the lion, and a very militant symbol. The lion of Judah is a strong kind of symbol. But what he hear, what that's what he hears, what he sees, I think I misspoke there. So what he hears is the lion, lion of Judah, very Jewish, very militant, very nationalistic, very us, not them. But then what he sees is this lamb who's been sacrificed yet is standing, and has been sacrificed for the salvation of the world. So it's much more universal, much more inclusive, and, and more sacrificial, and less kind of militant. So that's, that's the image that we get of, of Jesus in chapter 5. So, John's told, well he's told that the lion can do it. He sees the lamb. The lamb then takes the scroll, and now worship breaks out again, another worship service. So they must have been Pentecostal, I figure. They always come breaking out in worship services. Uh, Another worship service, and they're all worshiping now, both God who sits on the throne because he's creator, but also the lamb because he's redeemer. So creator and redeemer, uh, God and the lamb are both worshiped. So chapter 6 opens with the lamb now uh, breaking open those seals. So to, to go with the metaphor, The opening of the seal always results in some kind of judgment. Some kind of prophetic judgment takes place. But I don't relate those judgments in chapter 6 with the contents of the scroll. Uh, Because the idea is all seven seals would have to be broken before the scroll could be opened. And John have access to it and then prophesy the contents of the scroll. So... But that will play more next week as we look at another passage. But for now, the Lamb takes the scroll. He opens up the first seal, and there's a rider and a horse and judgment. He opens up the second he second seal. There's a rider, a horse, and judgment. He opens up the third seal, a third rider, a third horse, third judgment. He opens up the fourth seal, a fourth rider, getting the pattern, a fourth horse, a fourth judgment. He opens up the fifth seal. And it's these martyrs crying out from underneath the altar, how long before our blood is avenged? Well, that sounds bad. Because previously there had been one martyr, his name was Antipas, in one of the towns. This idea that there's kind of this group of martyrs, that's like, ooh, what's gonna happen? Ooh. You should you should hear that. Ooh. You know, ooh. Then they open up the sixth seal. The Lamb opens the sixth seal, and it's total chaos. It's apocalypse, not in the biblical sense, but in the Hollywood sense. Um, I mean, the moon's turning dark, and the, 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 the sun's turning dark. The moon's turning to blood. The stars are falling from the sky. The generals are hiding out in caves, saying, May the rocks of the mountains fall on us. Who can withstand the wrath of the Lamb? I need like a sound effect there like boom, boom, boom. boom. So that's. That's how chapter six comes to an end. So we've been told there's seven seals, and in chapter six, in rapid succession, one, two, three, four, five, six, seals are opened. And so if you're told there's seven seals and the lamb's opening them, breaking each one in, in order, and we've gotten one, two, three, four, five, six. what do we expect to happen next? Seven. Yeah, We expect for the seventh seal to be opened. And, and again, the end of chapter six the sixth seal's open, and it sounded like, you know, the end of the world as we know it, and we don't feel fine, with all due respect to REM. And we're expecting the seventh seal, and instead, we get chapter seven. I mean, in chapter eight, the seventh seal's open. Instead, we get this, this interlude, this pause, this, this uh Narrative, this little story, almost a parable uh, of God's protection and God's provision. Um, you're familiar with Winnie the Pooh? Not, not just the adventures of Winnie the Pooh by A.A. Milne, but the way that story has kind of gone out and you know, it's been Disney-fied. I don't know if that's a word, but you know Disney now owns it. Um, there, there are various Winnie the Pooh stories where Pooh's walking along with Piglet and all of a sudden Pooh breaks into a conversation with the narrator of the story. So there's the narrator and, and, and Pooh and they're going back and forth. And then Piglet's like, who are you talking to, Pooh? And Pooh's like, I'm talking to the narrator. Um, it's like this, this odd breaking of the fourth wall, literally speaking. Um, in a way, chapter 7 breaks with the narrative in Revelation. The same way the narrator breaks into Winnie the Pooh. Uh, or some of you might know the film um, or the book, uh, Just remind, The Princess Bride. Yeah, so for those of you who know The Princess Bride, it's a bit of a cult classic for people my age. We've watched it like, you know, 250 times. and could probably recite it for you. Um, Interestingly enough, very, a side note. Uh, Levi Larson, he often plays the bass or sometimes electric guitar for us. I don't know if you know him, you'd recognize him. Blonde kid up there. Uh, he had a birthday recently, and for his birthday, his friends got together. I was invited, uh, and we read the script to the princess bride. Like, that's what we did. We had like a script reading, like a roundtable script reading. It actually only took us about an hour and 20 minutes. It's pretty fun. But anyway, for those of you who don't know the story, just real briefly... Um, the central story is the story of a princess and her true love, Princess Buttercup and Wesley. But that story is couched inside another story, which is the story of a grandfather, uh, and in the movie is played by Peter Falk, the guy who played Columbo, uh, reading the story of the Princess Bride to his sick grandson, who's staying home from school, who was played by Fred Savage of um, Wonder Years fame. And, and so the majority of the book and the majority of the movie is the central story of a princess and her true love and being uh, kidnapped and rescued. But periodically throughout the story, the grandfather interrupts, and it's often at points at tension, like severe tension, like, like the princess is about to be killed, and he says, oh, she's going to be okay, don't worry. Um, or there are, more, there are other comic reliefs so that at one point they're going to kiss and, and it's the little boy saying, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, is this a kissing book? I don't want to read a kissing book. And then later, of course, he's all caught up in the story and doesn't matter so much anymore. Uh, as a way of analogy, I want you to think of Revelation 7 like God interrupting the story of the, all those judgments and the opening of the seals to say this, it's going to be Okay. I mean, in the end, it's going to work out. Uh, all the wind, all the destruction is going to be held at bay and God's seal is going to be on his people. And then all the people of God will stand before the throne. Um, I think it's, in a way, it's for those of us who are hearing the story who might get caught up in the, in the tension and the excitement and the anxiety of all of these judgments stacked one on top of the other. So, I mean, the first judgment is about conquest and there's one about war and there's one about pestilence and disease and pandemics and there's one about economic disaster and there's one about death. And, you know, it just, it just sounds awful, right? And then here comes the, 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 the gentle almost grandfatherly voice that says you will be alright. So, the story of being all right, then, is broken into these two uh, sections. Uh, section one, uh, which is the story of these 144,000, these 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. And then story two, of this kind of uh, every nation, tribe, people, and language, uh, this great multitude. So we'll, we'll look at them in turn. So you have, you've heard before of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, I don't know how much you've thought through it. The 12 tribes of Israel is a bit of a moving target. Like if I asked you to name the 12 tribes of Israel, I would be interested who could name them all. And I would also be interested in who you named. Because if you look up the 12 tribes of Israel in Scripture, they're not always the same list. It's like, who's, who's making this list? Because we say that the 12 tribes are the descendants of Jacob. But one of the descendants of Jacob is Levi and we often talk about the tribe of Levi but normally when we list the 12 Levi is not mentioned because the Levites became priests and they didn't receive land and when we list the 12 we list the 12 groups of land right real estate I'll say that for my realtors the, the, the real estate there that's there um, so uh, Joseph of course was one of the 12 sons but he's never mentioned hardly Although, interesting enough, he's mentioned in, in, uh, in this list. This is the only list where Joseph ever gets mentioned amongst the twelve. Joseph is normally not mentioned, but his two grandsons are, Manasseh and Ephraim. So if you say the twelve tribes and you mean the land, we can name those twelve. But in order to name those, Levi doesn't get mentioned, neither does Joseph, both of whom make this list. And then you get the grandsons of Joseph who are... Manasseh and Ephraim. Here, though, we include both Joseph and Levi, which means we have to leave out two others. And the ones that get left out are Ephraim and Dan, who normally always get mentioned. Secondly, normally when you see them listed, Reuben gets listed uh, first, and in this one, he's second. Reuben's normally gets listed first because he was the firstborn. They were really big on firstborn back in the day. Um, I say they're really big on firstborn, but then although the culture seems big on firstborn, Scripture seems to subvert the culture a bit uh, because who's the firstborn, Cain or Abel? Who's the firstborn, uh, Ishmael or Isaac? Who's the firstborn, Esau or Jacob? And it's always the secondborn in those cases that seem to be the chosen one, not the first. So there's a play on that, but here Reuben's not mentioned first. Judah is. This is the only list of the twelve where Judah gets mentioned first. So this is this is a very Christian, forgive the term. I don't forgive the term as you all you all are Christians, but um, naming of the Jewish tribes. This this is this is the Christian telling of it. So Judah comes first, and I'm not surprised by that because not only was David from was from Judah, but so was Jesus. Like Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. And we've already heard earlier of the lion of Judah, right? So Judah is mentioned first. Dan doesn't make the list and neither does Ephraim um, because, interestingly enough, we do include Levi, kind of including the priest. That's kind of nice. I say that as someone who's kind of priestly-ish. Um, and then also the including of Joseph, who normally gets left out. So what, is, what does all that mean? I, th- I think it means partially this. Um, we have a similar problem trying to name the 12 disciples, interesting enough. Because you got the 12 disciples from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But then in, in, in John, you're not quite sure who's who. Because you got Nathaniel. Is that supposed to be Matthew or no? Levi? I mean, there's like it's like, it doesn't line up just right. Which I kind of like. Because the 12 tribes is a little bit of ambiguity. The 12 apostles, who I'm quite sure are modeled after the 12 tribes, also has a little bit of ambiguity. Um, And so as someone who kind of likes ambiguity, I find that fascinating. But one of the key things I think about this is in verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, and they were 144,000. And then if you look at verse 8, after this I looked, I saw, and there was a great multitude. So if we remember back to chapter 5 and John's kind of encounter with Jesus in the the text, he hears that the line of Judah can open the scroll, um, the root of Jesse. But what he sees is this lamb that was slain for the foundation of the world. So here he hears that uh, it's 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe. Still very Jewish, you know, in, in his hearing. But what he sees is a great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Interesting that for. And who are these? They're standing before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. Which is interesting, a Jewish symbol. But then it says later in the description of them that their white robes, this is verse 14, it says, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal or the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That they're not simply martyrs, folks who've died for the faith. But they, their robes are white because they've been washed in blood, but not just their own blood, or maybe not even their own blood, but the blood of the Lamb. So the Lamb that was slain, for the salvation of the world. He, he saw that. It definitely, I think, is by way of comparison, Lion of Judah, 144,000 from the 12 tribes, all of that's heard. What's seen is the lamb that was slain and this great multitude that now have white robes washed in the blood of the lamb, standing before the throne of the lamb, right? They're definitely uh, closely affiliated with the lamb. So a couple of interpretations. Uh, Some want to say that the first group are are Jews, like ethnic Jews, or perhaps even nationally Jews, like Israelites. And the last group is this kind kind of inclusive, kind of larger group. So I'm not sure when it says all nations, tribes, languages, and peoples, when it says all nations, tribes, does all tribes include the 12 tribes we just heard? Is it inclusive of that group, or is this a separate group? So this is, a, this is actually a pretty big deal in how people interpret this. How do we as Christians understand Jews? Uh, I'm not just talking about people who are Jewish ethnically, but, but religiously. People who practice Judaism. Are they Christians? <coughs> are, they, are they eligible for evangelism? Do they need redemption? Salvation of Jesus? Like how, how are those two things understood so there are some Christians who think Jews are God's people no matter what and therefore they are, they are not eligible for Christian evangelism because they're God's chosen people they are already part of the people of God and then the rest of us need Jesus I find that very problematic because I believe all people need Jesus I, I think Jews need Jesus as much as Gentiles need Jesus and that, that seems to be a very consistent argument throughout the New Testament, that Jesus is it. And the preaching of the cross seems like foolishness to those who are I mean, the Jews hated Christ as much as that's why Paul faced such opposition. Paul says that. Hebrews says that. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, John is saying that. So the other idea is this, that the relationship of Jews and Gentiles is this kind of inclusive way that God worked through history to reach the world. So, how, I mean, how do you understand Paul in Romans? Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation. First the Jew and then the Greek. Does it mean, this is a visual, so everyone look up here. Does it mean first the Jew and then the Greek, like it's a hierarchy, like you have your first class citizens and your second class citizens and wouldn't it be nice if we were all Jews but they were born into it and were adopted into it, right? Or does it mean first, let's see, which way are you reading? Are you reading left or right? Does it mean first the Jew and then the Greek? Like chronologically speaking. Historically it came through Abraham, first the Jew, the descendants of Abraham. But it's the inclusion of the Gentiles. So it's first the Jew and then the Greek. So one... First group plus two, second group equals total group. So that the people of God are the Jews plus the Greeks equals people of God that are now Jew and Greek. Like that's how I understand Paul. I mean, you have certain arguments for sure, very clear ones, I think. Luke chapter 4, Jesus' sermon at Nazareth. He reads this very messianic passage from Isaiah. He basically says... Ta-da! Right? So he reads the Messianic passage, and he's like, I'm the guy. And, and if you read slowly, their first response to that is, everyone spoke well of him. Then he goes on to explain what he means by being the Messiah. And he tells the two most provocative stories he could have possibly chosen. Um, you know, sometimes we ask the question, why did Jesus die? And we, we, we jump to these big theological questions, you know, forgiveness of sins, he loves us and stuff. But on a very practical level, Jesus was executed because he did things and said things that made people want to kill him. <laughs> um, it's not like the Jews wanted Jesus to die in order to save the world or because he loved us. And it's like the Romans executed him in order for sin to be forgiven, right? They wanted him dead and the Romans were willing to do it because he did things and said things that made people want to kill him. And so Luke 4 is a perfect example of one of those, I think. So he says, he says I'm, basically he says, I'm the Messiah. And they're all like, woohoo. And then he tells them these stories about these Hebrew prophets who provided for these Gentile people. So Elijah, during the famine, went to the widow in Zarephath, which is in Sidon, which is modern-day Lebanon. There were a lot of widows in Galilee that could have used some food during the famine. But Elijah wasn't with them. He was with this Gentile. And then he says, Elisha, right, Elijah's protege, um, prayed for and healed Naaman from leprosy. Well, there are other people with leprosy, Jews and leprosy, Jews living in Galilee who had leprosy that didn't get healed during the time of Elisha. But who does get healed? Naaman, the Syrian general. I mean, it's, it's the modern day equivalent is if Jesus went to seminary and got out and came home and preached a sermon on the 4th of July uh, about how he was here to save the world and everybody's like, yeah, hometown guy. And he says, and what I mean by save the world is to save Al-Qaeda and Boko Haram and, and ISIS and Hamas and Hezbollah. And we're all like, you need to go back to seminary. Don't you know who we are? We're not them. We're us. Um, So so if you you can feel the rub in that, you can start to feel the rub of what those people in Nazareth felt. Why Why did they were all so excited when they first heard that he's the Messiah and then all so angry that they wanted to kill him when he was done preaching? It's because he said stuff that, well, ticked them off. Um, so you do get this inclusionary stuff within Jesus the, the good Samaritan it's a very inclusionary story because that's kind of the other um, even the thief on the cross is kind of inclusionary even though he's certainly Jewish um, but he's a zealot and Jesus you, know, you think of Jesus more as the, the peacemaker, peacemaker right? not the zealot lover but one of his disciples is a zealot and then there's that guy who's getting executed and Jesus says you can be with me too so you do get that inclusion stuff. Um Yeah, this, this one I was talking about its in ten fourteen. Uh and he says I put the sheep before myself, sacrificing myself if necessary. You need to know that I have other sheep in addition to those I need to gather and bring them to. Yeah, I wonder I wonder if, if that is a reference to Gentiles or if that's just a reference to those who've already believed and are following him, and then his desire to kind of reach out to even more Jews. Hard, hard to say there. The world. Yeah, cer- certainly, and, and the inclusion of the Gentiles, interestingly enough, is not a New Testament idea. Um, there, there were... In the Old Testament, um, people from other ethnic groups and other nationalities who were believing in the God of Israel and following his ways. And then um, in the intertestamental period, we have Jewish texts that talk about the inclusion and salvation of Gentiles, like holy Gentiles who will be in heaven with the God and the Jews, and then unholy Jews who will be in hell with the devil, and Gentiles. So, and then when we get to the New Testament, uh, certainly their God-fears, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 is described as a God-fearer. He might have been a Roman centurion, but he was already following Jewish ways, right, when he's included. And I was was in Miletus just this summer, uh, which is, you know, in Turkey. It's the last place that Paul was before he went back to Jerusalem. And at the theater there, kind of etched in stone, they were basically like reserved seats at the stadium um, and they were organized according to people group. And so in the place where it says the Jews, like etched in stone right next to it, it said, you know, Theos Phoba, like the God-fearers or Phoba Theos, the God-fearers. So that, that, those are Gentiles who are following Jewish faith. So, so, so they're there too, right? Oh yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad you brought it up. Because listen, the language, it doesn't say stamp. It says seal. So watch, watch this. I mean, it means the same thing, but I think the very use of the word is, is ironic. In chapter 6, we're told that there is a seal, different type of seal perhaps, but a seal holding that scroll closed. And the Lamb's been breaking open those seals. And each time there's a seal broken open, there's some kind of judgment. And it's looking bad, Right. So, you know, there's seal, 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 seal. Judgment, 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 judgment. And now here's this voice that I just said was accommodating and comforting, saying, I'm going to put a seal on your forehead. I mean, some of them might have said, no thanks. <laughs> right? well, you just heard what seals were about. You know, breaking the seals calls judgment. But yeah, um, it gets explained a bit more in chapter 14. But um, it actually is a... Um, a slavery metaphor. Um, certain slaves, especially runaway slaves, when they got caught and brought back, would be tattooed with their owner's um, name on their forehead. So you get, I mean, it's obvious who's the, you know slaves and who you belong to, right? Because it's tattooed on your forehead. That has nothing to do with the judgment. Yeah, I don't think so, no. It is an interesting play on words, but the, the seal on the forehead meant that God... If you had God's seal on you, it meant that God owned you, that you, you were God's, yeah. and that nobody better mess with you. So that, that's the, the disadvantage is you're a slave. The advantage is uh, you're owned by a powerful person, and uh, no one's going to mistreat you because they'd have to deal with the owner. And so it's this idea of protection is how it's understood. Yeah, not so much. That, that seal was to show that he was marked, right, as, as um, an outcast. So, I mean, it could do that, yeah. But the seal of God, certainly here, is not, he's not um, casting out the Jews, you know, in sake of everybody else. But it's like the seal of God, the protection. I mean, other, other texts will talk about the seal of the Spirit. Like, how do we know that we're Christian, but I can't look at you and tell you that you're Christian. I mean, if, if, I, if I went to a restaurant tonight that was packed out, I couldn't go around and say Christian, Christian, uh, Jewish, Muslim, non-Christian, secular, religious, but spiritual, not religious, whatever. Yeah, I'm trying to go down. Uh, Baptist, um, Christian, Christian. I'm just kidding. Um, just identify, yeah, we can't by looking at each other, let's, let's tell it. But the idea, I think, I understand, if I understand it correctly, of having the seal of God on us is not necessarily that we're actually physically marked, but rather that God, we are gods, like we belong to God, and therefore we are protected by God. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so there were, there were various ways in which that was practiced and those metaphors then get played off um, various ways in Scripture. But I, I think Fred's exactly right that these references uh, in, in the Pauline text about being sealed by the Spirit, about being a slave of Christ, are very much in keeping with the metaphors here in Revelation 7. Right, to be sealed by God is to be a slave of God is to be um, owned by God or protected by God. So, um, yeah, I would encourage, a couple of things I encourage you just generally reading scripture. One, do your best to ignore chapter and verse. I mean, it's only helpful for us. I can say everybody turn to chapter seven. We're gonna start in verse one. That's nice. But as you're reading, the chapters and verses are really arbitrary. And sometimes they'll prompt you to stop reading before the arc of the, of the argument's done. And so that's that's definitely don't wanna do that. And and the second thing, um, especially reading Revelation, but in, in some ways even reading the Gospels to a certain degree, um, starting at the beginning and just reading straight through, imagining that this is a chronological recounting uh, will lead you astray. Do you know when you, when you read a book or you watch a television show, you'll see something, it'll start, and then you'll see the story, and, and what you'll realize later is that was a flashback or, or a foreshadowing, and then it comes out um, definitely with Revelation, and to a certain degree with the Gospels. There's a fair amount of flashbacks and foreshadowings, and there's nothing to kind of tell us, hey, this is a flashback, or hey, this is a foreshadowing. In the same way that when you read a book or watch a film, there's nothing to tell you. Hey, no one says, all right, this is not happening now, this is a flashback, or this is not happening now, this is a foreshadowing of something that's coming up. But definitely in the text, that's exactly how this works. And if I had to to describe what I think this little story is, I think it's definitely a foreshadowing. Um, I think what's happening is, both here in chapter 7, it happens again in chapter 10, and and to a certain degree in chapters 19 and 20, um, John, and, um, also a little bit at the end of 11, but John's having these visions. Most of what the visions are best understood as are reality. Like Chapter 4 and 5 is not a vision of the future. It's a vision, it's a, it's a, it's a vision of reality. God is on the throne. God is being worshipped. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus um, is prepared to return as the judge chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation are not some future vision but uh, it is a revelation right, of our reality there are bits of revelation that I think are futuristic Uh, a final judgment, a return a reward for the righteous uh, a punishment for the wicked that stuff hasn't happened yet but a lot of it is describing how do you faithfully live as a Christian on planet Earth when it looks as though um, anything but God is in control. Like, how, how do you live on, on planet Earth if the beast is in control? And for John and his initial readers, that was Rome and the emperor. But you can, you can substitute various world powers... One of the beauties about a book like Revelation that is so symbolic that because it doesn't name Nero, it doesn't name Domitian, it becomes um, timeless in a way. It can be applied again and again and again. When I was in seminary, there was a, a guy I was in seminary with, his name was, um, I think I remember his name, Vladimir Moroshkin. No, no, no. Who is the dictator from Croatia? I get this guy's name confused with the guy I went to seminary with. They're two very different people. One of them was a Christian missionary, and the other was an evil dictator that killed people. Um, (laughs) Anyway, Vladimir, we'll just go with his first name. Vladimir testified in chapel one day. He said, um, I've seen the beast. Well, I'm perking up, man. I'm like, all right, buddy, what you got? So Vladimir's grandfather had been a martyr. He was killed by Joseph Stalin for planting a church. Uh, Vladimir's dad had spent 25 years in prison uh, for teaching Sunday school. Vladimir, my classmate, had spent five years in prison for his Christian ministry. He's like, I don't know what you think in the West about some future persecution. Persecution is on us. And that is, that is, it was such a lesson for me that when, when I read the text, I can't imagine that my life or my country is central to the story. What I need to know is that the people of God are living on the planet and a lot of them are suffering persecution, some of them severe persecution. Persecution. In, in, in places like in China or Vietnam or, or Russia or Sri Lanka uh, and, and there is no future persecution that's going to be worse than what they've endured. Imprisonment beatings, death right here, here lies in the challenge is that revelation never says the whole world will suffer. It says some will suffer But there are plenty of others in Revelation who aren't suffering but are in just as much danger of losing their souls. Not because they've recanted the faith in the face of persecution, but because they've forsaken their faith in the face of assimilation. Ephesus and Laodicea, the threat to them is not the power of the beast that will crush them, like in Smyrna and Philadelphia, the threat to them is they so happy with the beast that you can't tell them from anybody else in the Roman Empire. So here then comes the question for us. The chances that you will give your life, that you will die because you're a Christian or even go to jail because you're a Christian, living in Lakeland or Winterhaven or Plant City is zero. Like You're not going to have a chance to die for Jesus here. We don't kill Christians in Polk County or Hillsborough County. We don't even put Christians in jail here. So how are you going to live? The challenge to you is to be faithful and commit yourselves ultimately to the Lamb and His kingdom and not to the kingdom of the world. And this doesn't, and it doesn't quite matter, frankly, whether you're Jewish or Gentile. <coughs> For every nation, language, people, and tribe, he always liked to use four when he's talking about the, the world, and he always likes to use seven when he's talking about completeness, which interestingly enough, the description, the blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, might, seven adjectives, he does that a lot. He likes to use seven when he's talking about everything. He likes to use four when he's talking about the earth. So he uses the seven to glorify God. So everything is supposed to glorify God. And he uses the four to talk about the earth. What is it? Nations, tribes, languages, peoples. That means all of us. So, Yeah. Yeah, so what's interesting about the two groups, so to come back to that, that question, there's different ways. So you can have them completely separate right, kind of be kind of hyper Zionist, they don't Jews don't need Jesus, just the rest of us. You can have the, the 144,000 as a subgroup of the great multitude so the great multitude, those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb is inclusive of the 144 that's possible and then there's, there's this possibility and this is the one I tend to lean toward is that the two groups aren't intended to talk about two groups any more than the two descriptions of Jesus in chapter 5 are meant to talk about two different messiahs. So he hears that it's the Lion of Judah, the Root of Jesse, that can open the scroll. But what he sees is the lamb that was slain. What he hears is 144,000, a great multitude, or 144,000 from 12 tribes of Israel, But what he sees is a great multitude from every nation, language, tribe, and people. And the the, the 144,000 is a a quintessential militant symbol. Uh, There's a lot of reasons that you take a census, uh, but there are two main ones. Do you know why they would take a census in the ancient? They they do it for tax purposes. That was more for the Romans especially. They love to tax you. Yes. In the Old Testament, though, it's primarily for war. How many we got? How many they got? So every time you see a census in the Old Testament, and it's not uncommon, uh, counting the people, right? They're counting in preparation for battle. So when John wants to talk about the people of the Lord being protected by God, he has this hearing of this very militant, 12,000 from each tribe, very Jewish tribes of Israel, like a Lion of Judah. But who does the Lion of Judah turn out to be? A conquering king that kills the enemy or a sacrificing lamb that saves the enemy and all of us? So so we get this dual imagery, first the Jew, then the Greek. In the same way, we hear the lion, hear the 144,000, but see the lamb and see the lamb's multitude. They are the lamb's multitude. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So what I think, going back to that idea of, of flashbacks and foreshadowings, I think John is saying, here comes judgment And this is the way you should interpret judgment. When you see conquest, when you see wars, when you see economic disaster, or when you see pestilence and disease and death, or when you see martyrdom, what you should know is God's protecting you. It doesn't mean you might not get sick. It doesn't mean you might not suffer. It doesn't mean you might not get poor in an economic disaster. But it does mean that ultimately you belong to God and God will see you through. And then you get this great foreshadowing. This like ever so short glimpse picture of the end. Because this great multitude is standing before the throne of God. And they're worshiping the Lamb. How is all this going to come to an end? It's all going to come to an end when one day we all stand before the throne of God and worship the Lamb. Now, he will will give us more foreshadowings again. He gives us a bit in chapter 11. He gives us a bit um, in in chapters, whatever, 15, 16, or 15 anyway, and he gives us a bit, a real big, big, the big version of it is 19 and 20. All right, it's all kind of building towards that. But we get these, like, glimpses of the future. And here's a glimpse. Yeah, there's judgment. But God's judgment doesn't mean the end of the world. God's got you. God's got us. We we are his. And it doesn't matter. It's not so much what we do, right? Although there is this expectation that we do well. We, We are faithful witnesses. We keep the commandments. We keep the testimony of Jesus Christ. But what does matter is that our robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Right? It's the Lamb and the Lamb's sacrifice that is the determining factor of our salvation. Sounds like the gospel to me. I mean, if that that sounds unfamiliar to you... uh, then we need to talk about what you think the rest of the gospels and Acts and the Epistles say. Because that's that's really at the heart of the Christian message, is that in the in the Jesus event, right, the, the birth, the life, the teachings, the miracles, the death and resurrection, and ascension and enthronement, or as as Paul would like to say in to summarize Colossians, uh, crucified, dead, and buried, quick and raised and seated. That's the event, right? And that's, that's defined us as a group. So for some, this might sound, I have, had, I have taught this before, and somebody accused me of being anti-Semitic. Um, I don't think that's anti-Semitic. I think, I think it's in keeping with Jesus as the sole identifier of who we are, Jew and Gentile. Um, has God forsaken the Jews? no but all of us and first Enoch interestingly enough which predates Jesus by about 300 years makes the same argument that it's not ethnicity that makes us part of the people of God and and the New Testament is in that vein of Judaism right so it's in Jesus so don't worry don't worry about the fate of the world. Don't worry about the fate of our nation. doesn't mean don't pray for it, but it means don't worry about it. And, you know, the psalmist will say, yeah, judgment comes and it rains on the just and the unjust. Rain, rain was a good thing, by the way. So they wanted the rain. So it rains on people who are faithful and it rains on the crops of people who are unfaithful. That's not for us to determine or to fret. But know this. You are sealed by God. You are washed in the blood of the Lamb. And in the end, you'll stand before the throne. I think that's what Revelation 7 says to us. And it's all rooted in Jesus, a.k.a. the Lamb. All right, great term. That might be the end of us. Check, check, check. Okay. Uh, When some reason, interesting enough, this this verse, whatever that is, verse 14, and chapter 7, is the only reference or the use of the phrase the great tribulation uh, in the New Testament. Um, So depending on how you do your math and depending on how you read Daniel chapter 9, Mark chapter 13, and Revelation chapters 11, 12, and 13, um, and there are different ways to read that. The term great tribulation has now been used to refer to a final period of human history on planet Earth of the last seven years. I don't think that's what this is a reference to in chapter 7. So we we use that phrase, right? So we've kind of plucked the phrase from here and we're using it to understand how we've interpreted this kind of patchwork of text. Uh, Similarly to this, um, the term Antichrist appears in two New Testament books. little trivia for you here two New Testament books Antichrist we have 27 books to choose from want to name one not in Matthew in Matthew it's a reference to false Christs it doesn't use the term Antichrist (laughs) Thessalonians uses the phrase man of lawlessness doesn't use the word Antichrist yeah which ones one and two you were close In 1 John and in 2 John. Those are the only two New Testament books that use the term Antichrist. And in 1 John, it's in the plural. Antichrists. Who are already among us. Not among us. Among them. The Johannine community apparently. Um, That was supposed to be funny. Sorry. I think I had too many carbs for dinner. Um. The second reference, real quick, the second reference is in 2 John, and the phrase is the spirit of Antichrist. And it goes like this, the one who denies that Jesus came in the flesh, which is a very poetic way of saying, the one who says Jesus wasn't really human, he was just divine, speaks with the spirit of Antichrist. And in the Johannine literature, that's not a compliment. I mean, maybe you knew that, but. It's definitely a critique. You ought not say Jesus wasn't human <laughs> because according to 2 John, you're speaking with the spirit of Antichrist. So yeah, so I'm not fully convinced that Gnosticism had came into existence quite then, but I think what would become Gnosticism was incipient in the, in the community. So in Revelation, we have the figure of the beast there are actually two beasts: a beast of the land and a beast of the sea, or uh, a beast of the sea and a beast of the land to get it chronologically right. And so, part of what we've done is we've taken the antichrist vocabulary out of the Johannine lit, and we have the false Christ, also plural, from Matthew. We have the man of lawlessness from Thessalonians, and we have the beast or beasts. We often want to say one, but there's actually two. From Revelation, and we mix that together, and out pops this end of the world figure who looks like John Voigt, apparently, um, in the movies. (laughs) He always seems to be playing the Antichrist. God love him. Um, And it's not that that's a new idea. Ignatius, I mean, early church fathers would use the term Antichrist for final world. The eschatological world figure, right? It's not like a new thing. It's an old thing. But even old things, I think, sometimes probably need to be interrogated. In Revelation 7, though, if I'm understanding it correctly, in the midst of judgment, this telling of judgment, John tells us another story of protection and final reward. So what The great ordeal or the great tribulation is there seems to be this time between the Advents. So between the time when Jesus came, right, we celebrate it with Advent. That's that panel, that first panel, right? The Advent of Christ and the second Advent, the second coming, which interestingly enough is what joy to the world is about. Did you know that? That joy to the world is not about the birth of Jesus. It's about the second Advent. Advent. We often sing it at Christmas time, and I'm not opposed to us singing at Christmas time, but Isaac Watts wrote it about the second Advent, not the first. Uh, he was a Puritan. They didn't celebrate birthdays, including Jesus's. But uh, yeah, it's about the second Advent. A little Christian trivia for you there. But between the Advents, right, is this time of great tribulation when Jesus will come and judge the world and when Jesus came to spread the gospel. And in that time, there are going to be a lot of people from every tribe, language, people, and nation who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And in the end, where will they be? Safe before the throne of the Lamb. So I don't think Revelation 7 can necessarily speak to can people be saved or not be saved. And what ends up being literally the eschaton, the final years before the second advent, and however that plays out, um, because I think this is a reference to all of that time. Um, when we get to chapter eleven, we'll, we'll play out the 1,260 days and the 42 months and the times, times, and half a time, and we'll and uh, we'll do a little math, actually. And we'll, we'll do a comparison with Daniel 9 and, and talk about how is that read in relationship because Daniel 9 there were 70 weeks and there were 63 weeks and then there were six weeks and then there was the, the final 70th week and the 70th weeks interrupted and how all that ends up getting played out is, is, is very, very much been influenced by a reading of Revelation 11 and 12. And 13 which speaks of 1260 days which adds up to three and a half years and 42 months which adds up to three and a half years the 1260 days is literally I mean exactly three and a half years in a lunar calendar but not in a solar calendar which is where on but they followed the lunar calendar and the 42 months is also exactly three and a half years what's interesting about all that is John's favorite number to talk about times of judgment is not seven it's three and a half. Like, that's, that's his key number. He loves three and a half. Like, 1,260, that's three and a half. 42 months, that's three and a half. And he, he uses both of those twice. And then he uses the more opaque times, times, and half a time, which is a very poetic way of saying three and a half. Times, times, and half a time. That's three and a half. Uh, it's used in Daniel. It's reused in Revelation. He's, it's, it's a little bit of odd math. It's like apocalyptic math. And so we'll, but we'll, we'll play with it uh, one of these nights. All right, our time's kind of come and gone. Um, thanks, everybody, for coming back out. I hope this was helpful, and I hope you're encouraged. I mean, the, the goal of these times for us together, I mean, part of it's for us to come together and see each other. and But the goal is not just to hear the scriptures, but hopefully also understand and be encouraged by them. Or challenged by them. And they both come to us sometimes. And we'll get some challenge in Revelation. We don't want to be too beastly. We want to be more lambly. Or lambish. Whatever the right adjective is. Um, but tonight anyway, I, I, I don't think there's much of a challenge. I think tonight is mostly just an encouragement. If, if times get bad, don't worry. Um, God will see you through. The lamb is on the throne. The lamb is on the throne. Yeah, amen.